Let's pray for the Lord's blessing now on our time in his holy word. Father, we thank you for giving us the words of eternal life, giving us a clear direction on what you expect from men and what you expect from women. And we thank you for what a a beautiful compliment uh, that you've created in husband and wife and male and female. Help us to step aside from the lies of our culture uh, and to remember the the misery, the untold misery that those lies have created in our world and to rejoice in the wonderful things that you have revealed in your law that we might run together uh, as male and female on the path of your commandments and be an encouragement, a help to one another. And we pray that you would bless us to have right thoughts about these things, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to conform our thoughts to your holy word, we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. We have four scripture readings, and we're going to read them in reverse order because we're going to start with the last one so you don't have to turn back to it. So let's look at Titus. So First and Second Timothy and Titus is a real short book there, just three chapters. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. This is our first scripture reading, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. This is God's word. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then Ephesians chapter 5, to the left there just a little bit. Galatians, Ephesians there, right before Philippians. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. This is God's word. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, for he himself, being the savior, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, to the right there, just a little bit. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, just that one verse. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. This is God's word. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 is our final scripture reading to the right there just a little bit after the book of Hebrews. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. And that's where we'll start our exposition this morning and work our way backwards through those passages. First Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. This is God's word. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. May God bless the reading of his holy word. <clears throat> A minister and a writer named John Angel James, who was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, a man identified by Spurgeon as a man of eminent, an eminent man of God, wrote this wonderful paragraph. Listen closely to this. Woman was the finishing grace of the creation. Woman was the completeness of man's bliss in paradise. Woman was the cause of sin and death to our world. The world was redeemed by the seed of the woman. Woman is the mother of the human race. She is either our companion, counselor, and comforter in the pilgrimage of life, or she is our tempter, our scourge and destroyer. Our sweetest cup of earthly happiness or our bitterest drought of sorrow is mixed and administered by her hand. She not only renders smooth or rough our path to the grave, but helps or hinders our progress to immortality. In heaven... We shall bless God for her aid and in assisting us to reach that blissful state or amidst the torments of unutterable woe in another region, we shall deplore the fatality 
of her influence, end quote. Men do not lead well when their wife does not help them. Remember that grand purpose for which God gave Eve to Adam to be his helper, to help him. From the fall of man in the garden, the God-ordained complementary roles for male and female in people have been distorted, confused, and twisted by mankind. The portrait of biblical manhood that we looked at uh, last Sunday night, where he is the leader of family worship. The watchful man who stands fast in the faith and acts with courage, is strong, is a man of knowledge and faith, is a churchman, is a man of integrity, a Christ-prizer. He's not sexually immoral. He's not prideful. He's not governed by anger and is not selfish. This has been understood and embraced by men at various points of human history more than at others. But in our day, in our nation, sadly, such attributes are pretty rare. And that needs to change with us. That's got to change starting with us. The same sad story applies to the biblical portrait of womanhood. It's been badly distorted in our day as well. The great trouble the people of God have always had, it seems, if you read the whole Bible, has been following instead of leading. Following culture instead of leading culture. It's amazing how little vision there is among Christian people to set trends rather than to follow them. To live distinctly, biblically, instead of seeing how close they can come to worldliness without stepping over the line. To be leaders rather than followers. To stand out for Christ rather than trying to be like everyone else. That's got to change too. On our watch, we have to change. Over and over again throughout the history of Israel, the people of God experienced downfall after downfall, face plant after face plant, apostasy after apostasy by imitating their pagan neighbors rather than leading them. Jeremiah the prophet said, God speaking to the people said, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. He always wanted them, listen to me. Listen to what my word says. Don't learn the way of the Gentiles. One of the reasons the Christian witness to the world today is so weak is that those that profess to be Christians are so much like the world. What our culture calls beautiful is in many ways repulsive to the godly. And what our culture despises is in many ways delightful to the godly. Since the fall of man, there's been a very sinful obsession with outward appearance. And while we're obligated to take care of ourselves and to groom ourselves, it's easy to allow fashion and riches and sexuality to become idols to us. It is really a strange thing if you think carefully about it. Why are we so interested in being attractive to other people? There are a few things more fleeting than the praises and the approval of mankind. The very same people who pat you on the back are just as likely to stab you there. Public opinion ought not to be nearly as important to us as it often is. And people are very fickle in terms of what they like one day and what they dislike the next. And so we now must turn to the word of God to find out what God considers to be beautiful. What does God consider to be manly? What does God consider to be attractive? We now look at what is called incorruptible beauty. And what the scripture calls very precious in the sight of God. For all godly women, nothing could be more important than this. And I want to encourage women here to have beauty in God's sight, your main priority, when it comes to how you think about beauty. What is beautiful to my creator? What's very precious to him? If your creator calls certain things incorruptibly beautiful and identifies them as very precious in his sight, doesn't that grab your attention? There's nothing more beautiful than true godliness. There's nothing more lovely than women who exhibit the attributes that are spelled out in the text of scripture, which are this morning's passages. And so I've divided them into three headings there in your bulletin. There's a little outline there. The first heading is true biblical Beauty, 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. I hope you're still there in your Bible. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Here speaking to wives, 
the, our God says this in verse 3, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. Okay, stop there. Everyone, men and women, we all want to look decent. We all want to look good. The Word of God specifically tells women here, however, not to allow their beauty to be merely outward. And the application is clear. This can be a real temptation to women, and it can be for men as well. To be so concerned about your outward appearance that the cultivation of true inward beauty is neglected. One commentator said this, quote, Peter provides three examples of outward adornment, hair, jewelry, and clothes. He's not saying that women should neglect their outward appearance. He does not intend that they should have unkempt hair or wear no ornaments or dress in shabby clothes. Okay, so we can dismiss that right away. Like Isaiah in the Old Testament period said in Isaiah 3, Peter objects to the excesses of makeup and dress that were common among the wealthy ladies in the church and society of his day. The elaboration in hairstyles, makeup, dress, and personal jewelry in the first and second centuries is eloquently attested by the literature and art of the time period. If we paraphrase Peter's words to capture the intent of the Greek, we hear him saying, quote, I object to the work of elaborately braiding your hair, the ostentatious or pretentious wearing of gold ornaments, and the undue effort of dressing yourself in expensive clothes. Peter does not address slave women who lack the means to wear expensive garments and gold jewelry. On the contrary, he admonishes the wealthy ladies in the Christian community not to stress outward appearance, but to develop the inner beauty of a gentle spirit, end quote. God's word is here saying, don't let your adornment be merely outward. Yes, we should care about our appearance, but don't let it be merely outward. Let it be inward. The inward and outward. We, we tend to neglect the unseen, don't we? We tend to value the, the visible more than the invisible. But we know from Scripture, God values the invisible more. He's the one who can see the heart. And that's where he sees what is true beauty in his eyes. See verse 4? Let it be the hidden person of the heart. Okay, stop there. All of us have a hidden person of the heart. All of us do. And the word of God is saying, that's what I look at. That's what God looks at for true beauty. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. See the rest of verse 4? With the imperishable quality, the, the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. A gentle, quiet spirit. Now, there are ornaments and attire that excel outward ornaments and attire in their beauty. Nothing is more beautiful than a gentle and quiet spirit, a quiet inner person who trusts in the Lord Jesus fully. Nothing is more beautiful. Nothing is more incorruptibly beautiful. It can't be damaged by an accident or a disease. It's incorruptible in its beauty. Nothing is like that more than a gentle and quiet inner person. So ladies, let your souls be adorned with the clothing of Christ. A gentle, quiet spirit. A gentle, quiet soul. And I'd like to try to elaborate a little bit on what that means. A gentle, quiet spirit. What do those terms mean? The word gentle that's used there is the same word that's translated as meek in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That means blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the gentle. Those that are not easily impressed with themselves. Those that are easily provoked. Okay? That, that term praus there in Greek means pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Gentle, humble, considerate, meek. Now these are the attributes of Christians in general, but here in 1 Peter 3, 4, they are especially prized among women. Key application. Don't let your beauty be just your hair, your face, your clothes, your jewelry. Let your true beauty be that you're not characterized by a sense of self-importance. Let your true beauty be your gentleness. The, the inability of the trials of life to rattle you and to cause you to collapse. Let it be your humility that is your true adornment. Let it be that you are considerate, that you're meek, 
gentle, kind, and encourager. Those are the marks of true, biblical, incorruptible beauty. God sees the hidden person of the heart, he says. To God, a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious and beautiful in his sight. And now the term quiet, when it says there, have a quiet spirit. The term that's translated quiet there refers to peaceful, tranquil, and well-ordered. Peaceful, tranquil, and well-ordered. Your inner person. The heart of a godly, beautiful woman is not easily angered. She's peaceful and tranquil. She doesn't snap. She doesn't start yelling. She's void of angry, sinful passions. There is a Holy Spirit woven blanket of divinely given tranquility wrapped around her heart at all times. Especially when the bottom falls out of something in life. When there's a huge trial that would rattle most people. It doesn't rattle her. She's not rattled. She stands in a place of gentleness and has a well-ordered inner life. God has this. God decreed this. God's in control of this. I will rest in that place. It's characterized by joy in her salvation and her heavenly home and one day being able to be with her Lord. That's always what's in mind there. That is the shield behind which her inner person always stands. I'm a child of God. I'm a daughter of God. God loves me. That love cannot be broken by this trial. That love cannot be broken by this circumstance. She has a joyful submission about her toward her husband and and a deep love for him and for her family. Strength and honor are her clothing. And she doesn't worry about the future. Remember that passage in Proverbs 31? She rejoices in the days to come. Which, of course, means she's post-mill in her eschatology, right? (laughs) She rejoices at the future. She's not a pessimist. She doesn't think, oh, woe is us. Everything's falling apart. It's I can't wait for the grand revival. I can't wait for God's spirit to move and to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea with the knowledge of him in the gospel. You know, one of the hymns I had my precious wife make a hard copy of uh, on cardstock years ago, we taught it to the kids, is a Christian home. And that's one of the hymns in our hymnal. The second verse, I just love it. Oh, give us homes with godly fathers, mothers, who always place their hope and trust in him, whose tender patience turmoil never bothers, whose calm and courage trouble cannot dim, a home where each finds joy in serving others and love still shines though days be dark and grim. A godly woman is not easily bothered by turmoil. Does she feel pain? You bet she does. Does she weep? Oh, yes, she does. But she's not destroyed by the trials. She doesn't live in denial of the reality of turmoil or in denial of the pain inflicted upon us by our loving God who gives and takes away, who grants requests and sometimes denies them to us. And those things hurt, but turmoil does not send her spiraling down. She always has hope. She has that inner tranquility, that calm assurance that my God loves me regardless. And she's gentle. She's tranquil. She's undisturbed. And so, ladies, that's the ideal. I know that, that's, that sounds unattainable, doesn't it? But that's within the grasp of those that know Christ. Because her trust rests on the finished work of her Lord. And she trusts his good plan for her, even when that plan involves her tears. Remember that line, whose tender patience turmoil never bothers. Whose calm and courage trouble cannot dim. Will women feel the sting of loss, great heartache, have spiritual lows? Of course they will. We all do. I do. But in her heart, she trusts in the goodness of Christ, the one who bled and died for her soul. She trusts him. Therefore, she has a gentle and meek, quiet, tranquil, peaceful soul. You want to know, ladies, the culture around you, okay, the advertisements, the TV shows, the sitcoms, the movies, are not going to tell you that having a quiet, tranquil, peaceful soul that trusts in Christ is what beauty is. But God is telling you that it is. That's what he thinks is beautiful. It's incorruptibly beautiful. And it's very precious in his sight. Now turn over to 1 Timothy 2.9. Great, great verse. Very important verse, especially for our, our time. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. 1 Timothy 2.9, here the Holy Spirit says to his church, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper...
proper clothing. Some of your uh, translations say modest apparel. Modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, just break, stop right there. The text there is a reiteration of a lot of what's in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. But there's one difference though. There's one thing he adds that's not in the 1 Peter 3 passage. And it's proper clothing. And some render that as modest apparel. And as I've mentioned to you all last time we were together, when the gospel is unknown and cultures are largely unregenerate, they tend to be very decadent and immoral and immodest sexually. So much of the the pockets of Christians that are in America still were surrounded by so much immorality and so much immodesty and so much depravity that many Christians really struggle to remain sexually pure. And hence we have the adultery crisis. You know, the seventh commandment is a commandment we've got to really look carefully at and, and work to keep to make sure that we are chaste. Okay, the adultery crisis is everywhere, not just infidelity in marriage, but sexual immorality in all of its forms. But when the gospel begins to grab a hold of cultures and begins to make inroads there, people will begin to put clothes back on. And that's a good thing. The undressing of America is part of our cultural apostasy. The immodesty is part of that apostasy. The disrespect to the human body is a natural consequence of our collective turning away from God and turning away from the truth, from Christ and from righteousness. And that term proper, when it says proper or modest apparel, that means literally the Greek term means being appropriate for winning approval, appropriate. And while this passage is not overly specific as far as the appropriate lengths of clothing and things like that, For some reason, the Holy Spirit expects us to understand what it means, right? Just like drunkenness, when the Bible forbids drunkenness. And people want to know, what what is the precise blood alcohol level that that you cross the line in drunkenness? My response is, you shouldn't drink at all then, okay? We, We don't want to dance the line as far as we can go. The Holy Spirit expects us to know what modesty means here. But as a general rule, I want to encourage women, err on the side of caution, Err on the side of, of covering more as opposed to less. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. I once heard a Christian woman, who's very dear to me, speak to this issue with great insight. She said, if people see someone wearing a police uniform, they tend to assume that person's what? A policeman. If you see someone wearing a nurse's gown, we tend to assume that they're a nurse. If people see women dress the way that bad and immoral women dress, they tend to assume that woman is what? Bad and immoral. God gives us a very clear warning about bad and immoral women. In Proverbs 7, verses 10 through 12, the father speaking to his son uses this parable. And there, there a woman met him, this young man, with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious, and her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking on every corner. Now everyone here knows what is meant by the attire of a harlot. In opposition to this, women are to wear proper clothing, modest clothing. So sisters in Christ and my mothers in the Lord, you want to be modest And proper with clothing because it's pleasing to God, but also for the sake of your Christian brothers. You don't want to be a stumbling block to them. Remember the the questions and answers that we just went through in the Shorter Catechism. The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. So you are responsible, I am responsible, not only to be sexually pure myself, but to promote and preserve the sexual purity of others. Even if you don't really think that you dress immodestly on purpose, remember that there are men all around you. Men are very visually oriented. That's a biblical truth. They're visually oriented when it comes to sexuality. And remember these specific passages when it comes to men and their eyes. Job said in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? The godly father warning his son in the Proverbs 6.25, Do not lust after her beauty, her physical beauty and appearance in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. Those are things that the young man sees. 
These are all things that are seen with the eyes. And so I say to you this, this is why scripture speaks of this immoral woman in Proverbs 7 as wearing the attire of a harlot. Why do harlots dress the way they do? To attract the attention of men that see them. Men are drawn visually. Why is there instruction in the word of God to women? Dress modestly. But it doesn't say that you know, to men. It doesn't tell the men. Make sure you dress modestly. Now, men should, should dress modestly, but this is a particular problem for men. Do men need to dress modestly? Of course. But think about the plague and the scourge of sexual immorality and pornography in our culture today, along with the use of sex to sell everything. Everything from beer to toothpaste is sold using sex. Those advertisements are primarily aimed at men. So ladies, I want to encourage you, be concerned with the chastity and the holiness of the men around you. As the Holy Spirit says, I desire that the women be modest in their apparel and in their clothing. And I want to add one more thing. Please hear me. The kind of man you want to be married to is going to find immodesty repulsive anyway. They'll be attracted to modesty, not immodesty. Biblical woman is marked by incorruptible beauty. She has the gentle, meek, and quiet, tranquil spirit. You can see she loves God and loves her neighbor. Therefore, she dresses modestly. It's a reflection of where her heart is. She loves her Christian brothers. And so she wants to preserve her own and their chastity. Because sex is a gift for the married. It's a blessing for married people and not anyone outside of that. Okay, point number two, trustful and submissive. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Small block of text here, but again, uh, I'll tell you, I've been through this passage with, with many of the young people that are married here. Every time I walk through this passage, it gets me again. There are so many important, ordained, God-breathed truths here we need to remember. Look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. When it comes to marriage, women were not designed to lead, but to follow. They are the helpers, the advisors, the counselors to their husband, but they don't lead in the home. The man is supposed to do that. And while the majority of the decisions in a family will be joint decisions, in fact, I'd venture to say in a Christian marriage, 98, 99% of the decisions you make, you'll be in consultation with one another and you'll be in agreement on. Occasionally it will happen. There will be those moments where there's a big decision and you don't agree on it. And in those situations, the wife is required to submit to her husband's leadership and to follow him. And men, when those situations occur... It's a lot easier for them to submit to you if you've established a long track record of demonstrating by words and actions and attitudes that she's precious to you, that you're loyal to her, that you dearly love her, that you think about her constantly, that her walk with Christ and her happiness is your top priority in this earthly life, that you put her needs before your own, and that you die for her if need be. If you have a long track record of doing that, her submission to you is not going to be a problem. It will be submission to you as to the Lord. And her submission to the Lord is a joy. Her submission to you ought to be a joy too. And if it's not, that's our problem, guys. One reason our culture doesn't like this passage is so, so many people chafe when they, they see this. He's, he's the head of his wife as Jesus is the head of the church. So the reason so many people don't like it is that so many men in our culture and in the church today are directionless, visionless. They have no ambitions, no goals, no legacy. They're hoping to lead behind. And sadly for many men in our culture, their vision of manhood doesn't go much further than getting their guy to the next level of some video game. And now guys, if that's you, don't expect a woman to submit to you as to the Lord. To the married men with daughters. We got to model this kind of godliness that our daughters will one day have to submit to. It ought to be joyful submission. A trusting submission. A confident submission. 
Wives ought to be ready, willing, and able to submit to their husbands because that man is a godly man. He adores me, just as Jesus adores his church. To the unmarried women here of all ages who have the desire to be married one day, I want to encourage you, please, do not settle for an ungodly man when you get married. You'll never find a perfect guy. If you do, I'd like to meet him. All men are deeply flawed and sinful. Even the best of them are. But don't settle for someone who isn't godly. Don't settle for someone who is not self-sacrificial. Don't settle for someone who isn't a Bible-saturated, church-going Christian man because you're afraid of being alone. You've got to wait for a godly man. Pray for him. He's probably alive now, somewhere. Pray for him even if you've never met him. Pray for a man who will lead and to whom you'll be willing to submit because once you're married, you have to submit to him. Now, that does not mean submit to abuse. That does not mean submit to mistreatment. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying at all there. But wait for a godly man whose goals and ambitions in life you can make your own that you want to help him accomplish. Wait for the man that you know in your heart you want to help along the way. That man will not be able to do what God has called him to do without your help. So do you want to help him? Is what he wants to do in life, is that something you want to help him do? Will you want to submit to his leadership? And the reason I'm emphasizing this, you see verse 24? Look at verse 24 again. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything, it says. Now, folks, I didn't write that. That's the Holy Spirit of God's direction there for us. See if you can hear a consistent theme in the Proverbs. Proverbs 21.9. Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 25.24. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 27.15. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. And there's more. There's ones that speak of better to dwell in the wilderness than in a, a house Share it with a contentious woman. Anyone here ever watched Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls? My, my sons used to say, he must have a really contentious wife. He lives his whole life in the wilderness. <laughs> said, well, he makes millions of dollars doing that, so that's not why. Years ago, I worked as a surveyor's assistant, and, and we would do location surveys for a mortgage. Every time a mortgage is taken out on a house, you have to do a location survey to make sure the house isn't like pouring over the, the boundary markers into other people's property. One time in particular, I was there with another young guy who was also single, and he was leading our crew, and he knocked We always had to let people know we were there so they didn't stick their dogs on us or come out with guns or anything. So he knocked on the door. We're just here to do a location survey for the bank, and usually people are like, yeah, yeah, we've done this before. One time in particular, there was this old guy that came to the door, and his wife was standing behind her, absolutely chewing him up one side and down the other. She was yelling at him, yelling at us to get off her property. You're just trying to soak us for more money. And he just kept saying, it's okay, dear. Yes, dear. It's okay, dear. Yes, dear. It's okay, dear. And then when the door shut, my friend on the crew turned and looked at me and said, man, I ain't never getting married. <laughs> so ladies, if you do marry, you're going to make or break that guy. You're going to make her break that guy. Your life will be captured somewhere in one of these passages. Proverbs 12, 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs 14, verse 1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. You'll either build your house and be the crown of your husband, or you'll pull down the house with your hands and be rottenness in his bones. And this is why a virtuous and godly wife is prized so highly in Scripture. Proverbs 31.10 says her worth is far above rubies. There's nothing in the world that compares to how valuable a godly woman really is. And so, men, if you're married to one or you found one, make sure you praise her. And make sure you praise God in front of her for her. And guys, I also want to tell you, you've got to learn to listen to that godly woman. You got to listen to that godly woman that you're married to, and you got to listen to godly women in general in the church. You need their, their knowledge, their insight, their wisdom to be a good leader. When men are called upon to, to lead, it's not, it's not a, a dictatorship where we just stand and dictate. You got to learn to listen. God gave special insight to the women in your life, and you're a fool if you don't listen and you don't seek out their counsel. 
So many times I've tried to solve issues and problems without consulting the woman that knows me better than anyone ever has. And she'll, she'll solve it in two minutes. And I've been talk, thinking about it for two weeks. If I just ask, she's got insight, wisdom, knowledge. You got to listen to her. That's what she's there for. God gave you a helper. Let her help you. And ladies, I would encourage you, build up the men in your life. They're, they live in a culture that, that hates manhood, that hates when, when men try to be strong and, and lead well. Encourage them to do that. Encourage them to take initiative. Encourage them to lead. Build them up with words when they lead and when they love well. That way, when they need correction, as they often will, you, you've already demonstrated that you have a clear love for them. And you've tried to encourage the good that they are doing. So listen to that one more time. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Godly women are trustful and submissive. And part of what brings this about is the men they know are trustworthy and godly. Those men don't let them down. Okay, thirdly, a godly mentor to a younger woman. Here's another thing. We've got to recover this. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Please turn there. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Very important. Holy Spirit-inspired revelation here. <clears throat> Look at verse 3 there. Titus 2 and verse 3. Titus 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Okay, stop there. One of the great losses of our age-segregated world today is the older, younger paradigm of discipleship that is so plainly taught here in Scripture. While people tend to flock to their peers because they tend to have more in common with them, what is lost if they only contact we have is with people our own age. We lose, here, you all hearing me? Here's what we lose. We lose the transfer of wisdom gained from life experience. We've trained several generations of people in this country to gravitate not toward older, wiser people, but only to their peers. And I want to tell you, there's no substitute for life experience and the wisdom it brings. Yes, people who have no idea what Snapchat, TikTok, or Twitter even are, they actually know things you don't. And they know things that chat GPT will get wrong. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Life experience, including life without phones and the internet. I'm old enough to remember when there were no cell phones. I'm old enough to remember that. It actually wasn't such a bad world, you know? It wasn't. Life experience is one of the ways that God drives the nails of his word in, which then hold us firmly together as people. Life experience. There's no substitute for it. It's one, it's one thing to know in principle, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I heard that verse quoted constantly, but I haven't really learned what it means until I got older, till I had to believe it. It's another thing to experience suffering and hardship and loss, which forces you to live upon God in your distresses. So younger godly women must look to the older women in your church. Older women, you've got to be reverent in behavior, it says. That means religious, suitable to what is sacred. In fact, Young's literal translation translates that as in deportment as doth become sacred persons. So reverent in behavior, you are a godly person. You, have, you bring the air of heaven with you when you have conversations with people. The second thing there, you see it? Not malicious gossips. You know what that word is in Greek? It's the word diabolus, translated as devil. So <laughs> that kind of goes, don't, be reverent in behavior and not devils. Don't be a slanderer. You know, that's, that's really the way the term is being used there. Older women are not to spend their time talking about people, speaking lies about them. You know, some women and men, sadly, can't talk about people without chewing them up with their words. We can't be that way. We can't devour people with words. 
Proverbs 31, 26, about the godly woman. On her tongue is the law of kindness. When she speaks, it brings healing. It, it builds up. It encourages. On her tongue is the law of kindness. You see the next thing? Not enslaved to much wine. Not enslaved to much wine. And that means not being in subjection to it. Not being dependent on it. There's nothing wrong with consuming wine. Wine is a gift from God. But we are not to be enslaved to it. We're not to be dependent on it. Even if life is difficult, it gets painful, women and men are not to turn to wine or drugs for comfort. That's a clear teaching of God's word. See, the next thing, teachers of what is good. They are to teach what is good to the rising generation of young women. Now look at verse four. So that, so that's what she's supposed, the older women are supposed to have all those attributes. Verse four, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. Okay, so think about that. Can anyone think of why younger married women might need to be encouraged to love their husbands by the older women? Because we're not the easiest bunch to love all the time, are we? They've got to be admonished, encouraged. You got to love that guy. Older experienced married women have much that they need to impart to the younger women in their churches about how to bring out the best in your husband, how to love him in a way that, that accents his strengths and, and helps you to overcome his weaknesses. Younger women need the help of older women in this regard. And I suspect that this is not something the older women in most churches do with the younger women. The younger women need to be taught by the older women how to love their husbands. Also, the next thing, to love their children. Same thing there. Older women who have raised children, they got to pass that wisdom on to the younger women with children. So much is at stake. And there is so much wisdom that needs to be passed on. The biblical instructions on raising children and loving husband is, is quite clear, isn't it? The Bible says to do those things. But the applications of those biblical principles, they can be difficult to put into practice. They can be difficult to really see where the rubber hits the road. Younger women need the wisdom of the life experience of the older godly women in their congregations. And so, dear sisters in Christ, please find a way to do that. Because only you can do it. Your pastor and your elders can only encourage you, older women, to mentor the younger women. What God asks of older women, we as men cannot do. You don't want me planning baby showers, I promise you. <laughs> the younger women need you. They need you. God has blessed this church with exactly the people it needs to minister to one another. So often people think, well, my sins and my failures, my situation, my mistakes, the hardships I've been through, I'm sure that's true of someone else. And it's not as true of you. I don't care who you are or what you're going through or been through. You can be a mentor to the younger women in your church. And the hardships that you've endured and the life experiences that you've passed through, those might just turn out to be the younger women's greatest weapons. So don't think about yourself that way. Maybe the things that you've been through, the trials you've been through, maybe the sins you've committed or the mistakes you've made, maybe the very purpose of those was to help younger women. Older women need to encourage and admonish young women. Love your husbands, love your children, Look at verse five, to be sensible, that means to be self-controlled, to be pure, that means to be holy and innocent. And, you know, do we not live in a culture that is robbing young women of their innocence? Online predators, communication apps, dating apps, a thousand other portals to immorality and corruption. They're at their fingertips very often. We, we can't allow that. We, we got to watch out for that and protect them from that. Older women need to encourage young women, be sensible. Okay, you got to be self-controlled, sweetheart. You, you got to be discreet. You need to be pure, be, be sexually chaste. It is worth it to wait, wait. Now this is in stark contrast to what characterizes the young women of the world that are all around us. Many times younger women are anything but those things. They're not sensible. They're not pure. They're not chaste. They're, they're rash and immodest and, and reckless with themselves. They're too trusting of people. They're anything but sensible, discreet, pure, and chaste in their affections and behavior. Young women, when the older godly women and the older godly men in your life, when they warn you constantly about certain types of young men, please, 
listen to them. Don't be the person that's got to learn everything the hard way. It is not your parents' mission in life, nor is it the older women of your church's mission in life to make sure you never have any fun. They love you. They love you. And they want you to be free and happy and content and to have a wonderful life. And that involves self-control. That it involves saying no to urges and to temptations. The next thing listed there, workers at home. There's a popular one. <laughs> that, that term, that Greek word oikorgos means, quote, busy at home, working at home, a domestic keeper of the home. Proverbs 31, 10 to the end of that chapter covers that in wonderful detail. That would be in stark contrast to the loud and rebellious, immoral woman of Proverbs 7 whose feet would not stay at home. It says, you know, and what she was in this place and that place and all over the lurking around every corner. Paul told Timothy about ungodly young women in these words, 1 Timothy 5, 13. And besides, these learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Why was he saying that to Timothy? He's encouraging him there. You've got to make sure the older women mentor them. The older women have got to reach out to younger women in the church. I'm so thankful for the older women in this church that have reached out to some of the girls in my own family and have been a huge help to them. They're to be kind. You see the next attribute there? Kind. The older women teach the younger women, be kind. It means have high standards in all things in your work. Be good in, in your marriage, in your home, loving your children, loving your church. And then the last thing there, being subject to their own husbands, obedient to their own husbands, some render that. There's headship in the home, and the husband is the head of his home. Women must fight the results of the fall. Remember, God told Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, he told her, I'm going to multiply your sorrow in childbirth and your desire will be for your husband. In other words, you're going to want to nitpick that guy and control him and everything else, but he's going to rule over you. You got to fight that sinful desire to usurp his leadership, to usurp his headship. And husbands, we studied this this past Saturday morning. Husbands, Colossians 3.19, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Don't react harshly. To any sin, you've got to be the rock. You've got to be the one that is always walking smoothly. You don't lose it. You don't raise your voice. You don't say things that are cutting and hurting. That is the Holy Spirit's directive. Husbands, love her. Love your wife. Don't be bitter towards her. Don't react badly to anything. God commands you, don't be bitter. Don't be exasperated. Don't be angry. And when that verb is used passively, it means don't be embittered. Don't be irritated. Now, wives are required to obey their husbands. It says husbands are, not, are required not to embitter or exasperate their wives. We're not to make them angry. So brothers, let's say that your wife or your mother or your sister is very sad. Let's say she's in pain. Maybe she's sick. She's in a really bad mood. She's been in a bad place for a while. We must notice that the command of Colossians 3.19 is unqualified with regard to the well-being, the health, or the mood of your wife. Do not be bitter toward them. Don't be mean to her. Our calling from Christ is to love as Christ loved the church. Always. Regardless of mood, regardless of health, regardless of anything. And brothers, only a biblical man is going to be able to do that at all. Women, the same scenario applies in reverse. Obedience to your husband and being all these th other things, they're not optional and they're not conditional. They are divine commands. Okay, so does everyone see how much they need to be saved now? Now you see why all this is important. Look at the last phrase of that verse, of verse five. Why the older women have got to do this with the younger women? So the word of God is not dishonored. So that the word of God would not be blasphemed. What's the result when Christian women are not taught these things by the older women? God looks bad, man. Because then we look just like everybody else. We look like the sinful world around us. The usages of that word dishonor, it means slandered, reviled, defamed. God's word is defamed when that doesn't happen. So, biblical womanhood. It's characterized by that which is beautiful and precious to God. 
Biblical women have gentle, quiet, meek, tranquil, peaceful souls. Their, their inner person is shielded from the turmoil. They still feel the pain. They weep. They, they have hard times, but they have a gentle, quiet spirit. They have self-respect given to them by God and a love for their Christian brethren. They adorn themselves modestly, properly. You can see their love for God in the way they dress. They take care of themselves, but they don't obsess about what they look like. They're trustful and submissive. The young women look up to, admire, and learn from older godly women. They learn from them to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands. So the word of God is not blasphemed. So let me summarize the whole thing now, the last three sermons. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. That's God's law. That's our creator's law. This commandment requires us to be sexually pure in every way ourselves and to promote sexual purity in others. And if we're married, to have a single-minded devotion to the person we're married to when it comes to that issue. This is the third sermon we've done on this commandment. The first was about marriage and sex as a blessing only for the married. It is only for married people. Sex is a privilege, not a right. It's only for married people, nobody else. Sex is supposed to be a blessing for married people, but sadly, because of the constant breaking of this commandment in our culture, it's often a source of shame, regret, heartache, difficulty, and it's something ministers don't like to preach on. It's not supposed to be that way. Be committed to praying that God would give you a hatred of sexual sin and a passion for sexual purity. Remember what the Holy Spirit said in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be sexually sanctified, we have to think biblically in our minds about sex, and we have to think biblically about marriage, and we got to think biblically about manhood and womanhood. Before marriage or after marriage, sex is to stay dormant. Three times on the Song of Solomon... We are told three different places, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Why would God tell us that? Because he loves us. He wants this to be a blessing, not a scourge in your life. The Holy Spirit's presence in our hearts bears the fruit of self-control. We have God's promise. We will not be tempted beyond what we are able. He always provides the avenue of escape. And just so we're all on the same page together, our loving Lord bore God's justice for all the sexual sins of his people. Just like all their other sins. There is forgiveness, there is cleansing for, the, for this sin. I want to encourage you to never doubt that. Never doubt it. No one has ever been perfectly chaste or sexually pure except Jesus himself. But I want to tell you and remind myself, nothing short of purity is our goal. And in Christ, we can attain that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus died to forgive us of violations of the seventh commandment, of which all of us are guilty. Thank you for his finished work. But Lord, we pray that these passages would sink deeply into our souls and our hearts and minds, that they would inform our actions. And I do pray that the older women would have a burden for the younger women here who desperately need their wisdom, their life experience to learn those vital skills and uh, we pray that the women here would adorn themselves modestly and would walk with you and be an encouragement to all who know them we ask in christ's name amen